Good morning. I'm Janine Aronowitz. I'm on the church council, and I'm going to be reading our scripture this morning from Daniel 3. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth six cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then he sent to gather all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. As soon as all the peoples heard the sound of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshiped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. At that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared, there are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar said to them, is it true that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. The word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be, be to God. God. Would you, would you bow and worship a giant statue? It's kind of a strange question, right? But that reading that we just had in Daniel 3 asks that question of us as it did of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Would you bow down and worship a giant image, a giant statue in the middle of the field like everyone else was doing? And the answer we would have is no, of course not. That's bizarre. That's, that's crazy and silly. And besides that, Christians don't worship statues. We don't worship buildings or stadiums or statues. But I'm not sure that we are always aware of the idols we're being asked to bow down to. You know, sometimes we've talked about this, about the obvious idols. And the word idol, it's not just a statue. It's anything that is God. It is anything that becomes primary in your life, right? And some of those are more obvious, like money or sex can be an idol as something that you worship, you live for. But so can career or kids. Even just in the back of your head, that American dream that I know we've in a sense thrown off, but the idea of, oh, I'm gonna have a, a good job and a good marriage and two and a half kids and, and a 
house and two cars and you know it's just this kind of basic idea right it's not all bad in fact most things that we turn into idols are good things that become ultimate things in our life but underneath of these are even controlling idols it's the idea of things that are the motives of our heart the things we live for and dream about our hopes our fears power comfort control being liked and approved of these are the motives of our lives that that become the things that we're being asked to bow down to or we cause everything else to bow before them it's what we are really after it's what we want in our deepest places of our heart and what we fear greatest not being liked and approved or not having comfort and ease in life it's the things that our mind goes to easily when it's free to wander the challenge on top of that that I find is that every culture weaves a web of idols. It creates an environment in which certain things become ultimate more obviously than others. So every culture and every time, whether it's Babylon or Rome or America, every culture defines what's normal. It's the things that everyone knows and does. It's just this is, this is the way it is. This is what we do. It's an inherited way of thinking that is very hard to realize that we think that way very naturally, and yet it's not natural to other cultures or other times. So as an example, nowadays, do you think it's extravagant to own two cars? If you're a family, you know, if you're married, you have kids, do you think it's extravagant to own two cars? And my guess is, at least my answer is, well, no. That's pretty normal. I mean, we have five drivers in my home, so two cars at least, right? I think about it pragmatically and don't think about it extravagantly, but literally just 70 years ago, owning a car was became normal, but owning two was out of the out of the normal. It was pretty extravagant. Who owns two cars? But think about how quickly we inherit an idea that becomes normative for us, as if owning two cars is a right. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but I'm suggesting there are things that we become unaware, that we are unaware of that are shaping our thinking, our values, what we're after. And we don't even realize that the world in which we live, the culture in which we live is a part of shaping those. It shapes our hopes and our fears. How is success defined in our modern Western culture? Achievement and wealth, right? or fame and beauty. Even the word happiness. The word happiness changes depending on the culture. In our culture, happiness is defined by being able to do what you want. And therefore, we take the word freedom and we mean it to mean autonomy, doing whatever I want without anybody having a say in it. We also define happiness as easiness, easy life, comfort, avoiding suffering. We do not want health issues. We do not want to die. And all of that is very natural. But think about what happens when that becomes the assumed way of thinking. You don't, you should not suffer. You should be able to do whatever you want. When I say, are we the kind of people who would bow down to a giant statue in a field? Maybe not. But the question is, or the concern for all of us is we may be bowing to idols without knowing it because everyone else is too. 
and we've been doing it our whole life. In Daniel chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar, the emperor of Babylon and in the whole known world at that time, erects a 90-foot gold statue, a giant towering statue in a world when it was hard to build buildings. He erects a 90-foot golden statue, an idol, an image that is a symbol of power and wealth and majesty. When any person in that ancient world saw it, they would have been blown away in both awe and wonder and fear at the sort of person and culture that can produce this. What this represented, and we're not sure what it is. Is it an image of Nebuchadnezzar himself? Is it one of their main gods? We don't know. But based on verse 12, when um, the Chaldeans come and accuse Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego of not bowing down, it, it encompassed a whole lot of things. It was representative of the gods of Babylon, the pagan gods and of their culture, because the gods symbolized and represented was the forward face of the very culture of Babylon. And of course, because Nebuchadnezzar erected it and was having everyone bow down to it, it represented his authority, his power, his influence, his wealth. Will you submit to the gods, the culture, the power of Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar? Now, one of the things we have to realize here is what Nebuchadnezzar is not doing. Nebuchadnezzar is not saying you need to worship the idols of Babylon in place of your gods. You see, whenever um, Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon took over a country, they would conquer people and bring them back. And many of these peoples from all over the world, they, they had different gods and religions. The people of Israel worshiped Yahweh. They had the temple. When the people were brought back from Babylon, stolen and taken into captivity, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Daniel, they still worshiped Yahweh, the God of Israel, but they were supposed to also worship the gods of Babylon to make their God secondary. And the culture, the learning, the gods, the power of Babylon to be primary. So it's not you must worship Babylon and the gods of Babylon in place of your God, it's fine to worship alongside of it, to worship your gods, your cultural gods alongside of, but they must be secondary and this must be primary. In public, in public, you will bow to and serve the gods of Babylon, the ways of Babylon. They will be your first. Anything else is secondary. And private. You know, um, in America, we've lived with this uh, tension of a public-private faith for a long time. In the U.S., we define tolerance as anyone can believe what they want as long as it's kept private. Your religion is meant to be something that's private. And while Christians, we tend to get a little upset about this, we actually do the same thing. We actually uphold this way of thinking because if I said, um, tell me about your faith, your faith is very personal to you. We think about it that way. It's my faith. It's my relationship with God. And when I was a teenager, we talked about my walk with the Lord, me personally. And we think of discipleship as a solo activity. How do I grow in faith? My prayer life. What am I doing? What is God doing in me? We privatize 
our own religion. We personalize it and privatize it. And this is most uh, very easy to see in the way we approach church membership. We move around, we jump churches, denominations, and we do so because we have less of a high view of committing to other people. We have a private religion, a personal religion. But the gospel calls us to a public faith, not a private faith, and a corporate discipleship. We grow in our faith together. We're called to worship God together, to seek the Lord together. We're called to commit to one another. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did not live a private faith or a personal one. They lived it out publicly and together. So what is it that they did and didn't do? Well, you know, I actually want to start with reminding us of what they did do, not what they didn't do in this instance. What they did do, and this is actually going back to the past two chapters, the past two weeks, if you were not with us, what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, as well as Daniel, their friend, did do was they were willing to accept new names, new pagan Babylonian god names. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were names associated with the gods of Babylon. They were willing to accept new names and the roles that they, they played in that. They were willing to study in a Babylonian university, which basically meant a secular or pagan religious institution. They said yes to the university, yes to the names, and they worked for the government, the tyrannical government of, of Nebuchadnezzar. They worked as regional governors, and they were responsible for establishing laws, um, justice, carrying out Nebuchadnezzar's purposes for the good and well-being of the society, of Babylon itself. So these are things they did do, but what they did not do was bow to and worship the image. Now imagine the situation. They're brought into this giant field with all the other key leaders in the community, the, all the other key leaders in the nation, and the heads of probably all the exiled countries that had been taken there. And everyone was to bow down. And whoever didn't would be obviously seen as not bowing down. And they were going to be burned alive. The fear and the danger to stand and not bow down and worship. but. They trusted God. They trusted Yahweh, the God of Israel. And they trusted God together and publicly. And you know, this gets us back to that idea that we've been talking about the past few weeks about what does it look like to be faithful in exile? How do we live out faithfulness in exile? This is a reverse of the order that we talked about two weeks ago. But when we are trying to be faithful in exile, we need to first seek the welfare of the city of our exile. In other words, you don't assimilate and become just like the culture, nor do you avoid and sequester yourself off from the culture so that you don't get infected by it, but you are involved in, engaged with, working for the good of the culture in which God has placed you. And that's why in Jeremiah 29, the, the Lord says to all those who are in exile in Babylon to build buildings and houses and plant gardens and harvest them and get married and have children and relate to people. Basically, plant yourself in the city 
and seek the welfare of the city to which I have called you. Pray for it. Work for it. Work for its shalom and well-being and flourishing. That's the first thing that these three guys were already doing. Part of their faithfulness in exile is seeking the welfare of the city of their exile. The second thing that I believe we're called to in faithfulness in exile is to understand the culture. So this means that you become a student of your culture, not just somebody who, who is in it. Don't just swim around in the water, become a marine biologist. Understand what's happening in the cultural moment. And not just what's happening externally, how the laws are changing, but why. What's underneath of it? And what assumptions and dreams do you buy into, do I buy into just naturally because we live here? And then how do we evaluate those? It's the questions that we talked about last week that David Kinnaman notes in his book, uh, Faith for Exiles, which is when you think of anything to do with your culture, with your um, nation, with your city, you ask, what is right about the culture? What is wrong? What is missing? And what is confused? What things are right and should be celebrated? This is a good thing and Christians can jump on board with this. What is wrong? and maybe needs to be challenged. What is missing? It needs to be created or built. What is confused? It needs clarity. And that's why over the past couple of years, we've talked a lot about finding our identity in Christ and not in anything else. It's why we've talked about establishing authority. The How do we know what's true and right and good? Because these are some of the things that are either missing or confused or wrong. And yet we've also talked about things like um, the need for racial justice in our country, which our culture has been pushing forward over the past year and is something that Christians can celebrate and work with as well. We need to understand the culture, understand the things that we just take as assumptions and understand the places we do need to stand up and not bow down. And in order to do that, we can't just know the culture and live in the culture, we also need to know the God who we serve. And when I talk about that, I've talked about that in two ways. One is we need to know God experientially, relationally. We need to have an experience of God's love for us that transforms our thinking and the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. But we also need to know truth, that knowing the God of the Bible is not just knowing what I think of God in my head or in my heart, it's actually knowing who God is as he has revealed himself in Christ and in scripture, as understood by the church historic and global, not just me by myself. We want to be people, we're called to be people who worship and serve and bow down to the one true God. But who is the one true God? Or put it another way, what God are you bowing down to? Do we trust God only? You know, when Nebuchadnezzar had the three boys, the three young men brought to him, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, he challenged them and said, hey, you better bow down to, I'm going to give you one last chance. You better bow down to the image that I set up or you're done for. I'm going to throw you in the furnace. And he says in verse 15, if you don't worship, you'll immediately be cast into the fiery furnace. And then he says this phrase, and who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands?
Who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? I am truly powerful. What God are you going to trust in then? And of course, (laughs) Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they respond. They respond in verse 17 and 18. Our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us. He's able to deliver us from the fiery furnace. In fact, we believe he will do so. But even if he does not save us from the fiery furnace, we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Our God is able to save us from your hands and from the furnace. But even if he does not do so in this instance, we will not bow down. You know, I've come across people who reject God for a number of reasons. And if you can push deeper into their lives, um, sometimes some people reject God because uh, they've prayed to God, maybe when they were younger or years ago, and didn't get the answer that they were looking for. God never showed up in the way that they expected him to. Or their life has turned out very poorly. Things have broken down. They've dealt with failure or suffering or loss. And it's basically this idea. How could a good God allow my brother to die? Or I can't believe in a God who would let me deal with this in my family. How come he made me like this? I can't believe in a God who would do this to me. In that way of thinking about God, you were going to God in prayer or turning to God made in your own image, one that you were trying to get something from. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did not worship and serve God only in order to get saved from the fiery furnace. In other words, they didn't say we're going to worship and serve God so that he'll save us from the fiery furnace. In fact, they worshiped and served God not to get anything. They worshiped and served God for God because he was God and he was their God. And they knew both in their head, intellectually, theologically, and in their heart experientially. They knew both ways that if they had God, they had everything they needed. They had the God who was able to save them, deliver them, heal them, rescue them, and the God who ultimately would do so eternally. You know, if we were to ask, why do we live with so many fears and anxieties in life? And and we do, right? We live constantly with the what-ifs in our head. Um, What if I don't get into that college? What if I lose my job and then I can't provide for my family? What if I never get married? I'm already this old and what if I never get married? What What if I fail? What if people reject me? What if my friends turn their backs on me? What if we have that fear and the constant anxiety and fear for many reasons, but one of them is because we are not just worshiping God. We're worshiping God and something else, worshiping God and success, worshiping God and happiness, worshiping God and being loved and liked. We're looking salvation. We're looking for a salvation from God in this life that the God of the Bible does not necessarily promise. 
we're not worshiping God alone. We're worshiping God and something else or God made in the image of what we really want. But when God alone is who you worship, you have no reason to fear because there's nothing that can happen in this life that can take away what you already have in him. It's why Jesus said in Matthew 10, 28, do not fear the one who can kill the body, but not the soul. And then he goes on to say, basically fear only God almighty. And fear there means don't live bowing to people or things that yes, can kill your body, but cannot kill you eternally. Fear, bow to worship only God. And why uh, Paul was able to declare, even while he was in prison, facing execution, for to me to live is Christ, to die is gain. No, I don't want to die, but whether I live or die, I already have Christ. And if I have Christ, then no matter what happens, I have all I need. The rest of the story that we didn't read in verses 19 and following is that the God of the Bible, Yahweh, the one true God, the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did save them. They were thrown into the fiery furnace that was heated so hot, seven times hotter than normal, that the men who were stoking the fire were burned up. And the, the men who threw the, the, the roped up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into the fire were burned up in the process. But then King Nebuchadnezzar looks into the furnace from afar, from the side, and he sees Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and a fourth, a fourth person, one like a son of God. And he calls them to come out of the fire. And the three come out, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and they are unharmed. God entered the furnace with them and delivered them. Emmanuel, God with us. God was with them. You know, and that's the gospel right there. It's the gospel. We don't know whether that was a pre-incarnate Jesus, whether it was the angel of the Lord or God taking a human form, but we know that it was the God of the Bible who was present with them so they could see and be kept safe. He was with them. That's the gospel. The gospel is about Emmanuel, God with us. Christ entered the world, this world. He entered and endured the furnace for us to deliver us. The eternal furnace he experienced so that we can be delivered eternally. You know, in this life, you may suffer. Um, we may not escape the fires of this life. We may deal with loss and challenge and suffering. The things that you want may not happen, but the promise of the gospel that's revealed again in this passage is that God will be with us in it. He will walk with us through it. And while we may not be saved, delivered right now, we have been saved and delivered and will be eternally. That's why Paul was able to say, 
this light and momentary affliction, and he had been beaten up and uh, abused and dealt with injustices and imprisoned and nearly executed and killed multiple times, this light and momentary affliction is not worth comparing with the eternal weight of glory that is to be revealed. In Christ, we have the assurance of life. Nebuchadnezzar sees what happens, calls the three men out, and he believes. The one who had set up the, the idol that everyone needed to bow down believed in the God of the Bible. He says, Blessed be, this is uh, Daniel chapter 3, verse 28. Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him. Their God sent, delivered, because they trusted. And then he goes on to say, for there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Nebuchadnezzar believes. Well, for one chapter. We'll see next week that it doesn't stay long. Because probably for somebody like him, he was getting a glimpse of who this God is. But something else was on the throne of his heart. And the invitation is to us to say, where are we this morning? Can we declare with those three that no matter what happens, we will not bow down? Or do we, like Nebuchadnezzar, say, God is God, but in the next chapter, turn away? Let's pray. God, this morning, as we seek after you, encourage us through this story, this wonderful story of these three young men and their faithfulness to bow only to you even when life was on the line and all the pressure around them. Give us wisdom to see the idols that we are being asked to bow down to and the ones that we have already been bowing down to in our heart. And give us the strength and courage and faith to trust in you and you alone. Amen.